2: Welcome back, everyone, to Loved As You Are, an Ignatian podcast with me, Gretchen Crowder. It's finally fall in DFW. Thank God. At the recording of this podcast episode, we were experiencing a bout of the Texas version of fall with a high of 75 and a low of 60. I can only appreciate the colors of fall from social media pictures, however, because the trees and the occupants down here in Texas never stop being confused about the weather. My guest today, however, is in Northwest Arkansas, where the fall colors are on full display for her to enjoy. Today I bring you my conversation with Finita Wright. Finita Wright recently retired from a three-decade career as a book editor, the last 22 years at Loyola Press, a Jesuit ministry in Chicago. She has worked with authors such as Kevin O'Brien, Mark Thibodeau, James Martin, and the late William Barry. She is the author of three novels and various works of nonfiction, including Small Simple Ways, an Ignatian Daybook for Healthy Spiritual Living, The Art of Spiritual Writing, and most recently, Set the World on Fire, a four-week personal retreat with female doctors of the church. Vanita and her husband Jim now reside in northwest Arkansas, where she continues to write, facilitate retreats on writing, creativity, and prayer, and serves her newest vocation as a spiritual director. She has written numerous articles for the website IgnatianSpirituality.com. I first met Vanita through the Into the Deep blog, which is now officially hosted on IgnatianMinistries.com. I soon realized our mutual connection to Loyola Press, where I also write for Ignatian Spirituality. I know Vanita as an editor, as a spiritual director, as a fellow writer, and as a friend. Vanita has decades of experience with Ignatian spirituality and a real concrete connection to how humanity and God fit together. I think you're going to love this conversation. I know I did. So here we go. the loved as you are podcast i'm so glad to have you here today i was just telling my guests that it is finally fall in texas at least for today the temperature is like a high of 75 today it might change to 80 again or 90 tomorrow but today it's today <laughs> it's fall but i also told them i don't get to see the fall colors and i'm just curious does arkansas have good fall colors
3: oh we do we oh. do Um, and, uh, it's later October toward the end of October when Mm -hmm. we'll get that, but already as I'm driving in the area, I'm seeing things begin to turn and yeah, the Ozarks are a lovely place in the autumn. So, and we also have a cool spell Mm. and I dared to put on a flannel shirt today. We'll see if I have to change by afternoon, but, uh,
2: (laughs) yeah, I looked up your weather and it was like low in the 30s and high in the 70s it it didn't hit
3: freezing anywhere near freezing but yeah no i I love the autumn weather
2: yeah i um have to look on social media for all of the fall pictures because texas leaves are very confused they don't know what Mm -hmm. what temperature it is (laughs) well i usually start these conversations with asking people who is god to you and how did you come to that understanding
3: Okay, well, nothing like starting with the biggest, (laughs) most fundamental question in the universe. Um, You know, I believe it's in the Gospel of John, um, where, or it may be in the the little letters of John, where it says that God is love. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: And, you know, that can sound kind of trite, because you grow up in Sunday school, God is love, God is love. But if you think of what that really means, you know, love is not just this affection we have for people, or even doing good towards others. But as the foundational energy of all that is, you know, love is what generated the creation of of you and me, the universe. Wherever love moves, it gives life, it heals, it moves people forward, it makes us more whole. And so I, you know, my thinking of God, of course, I still think of God as person, because that's just a human way. I think we need that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of God in terms of father, mother. I also think of God in terms of, you know, you are this elemental, wonderful, life-giving energy Mm -hmm. in in all things, including me. And Mm -hmm. so... Now, I didn't grow up that way. I grew up in a very, you know, Midwestern, small town, you know, religious environment where God was definitely this stern, you know, father who lived up from where we were. And, you know, I grew up with that image. But as you know, we often uh, see our Heavenly Father, uh, we kind of project what our own experience of father is. And I had a father who loved me very much. But you could never please him. I mean, he was Mm -hmm. was a very critical man. And so for much of my early life, God was this, you know, heavenly father that also I would never actually please. And Mm -hmm. it was just impossible. And so I always was carrying this sort of, you know, cloud around me of guilt and shame that I just was never enough. I would never be enough. I would never learn enough, pray enough, know enough, you know, just that whole not enough story. But, you know, over the years, you begin to see that uh, that image of God is really inadequate and it's Mm -hmm. it's not really it's not healthy either. Mm -hmm. And in my 30s, when I when I turned 30, I hit a real crisis of faith and I, I really had to leave the faith for a while in order to kind of deconstruct it and come back to it, which I think a lot of people do. It's usually, you know, it looks horrible at the time, but it's a very healthy process.
4: Mm-hmm. because
3: it, at some point you have to let go of the god of your childhood mm-hmm. and the god of your local culture and you have to let go of that in order to begin to perceive okay there's a god who is and i'm not really that i'm not really that well acquainted with the god who is mm-hmm. and because of a lot of things and i remember a moment that was really um it was it was transformational for me in terms of how god sees me because uh, i think often uh, the church whether it's catholic baptist what have you i think especially in western culture we have sort of absorbed this way of looking at ourselves in which we always start the starting point is sin mm-hmm. and that just puts us in a really bad place if that's our mm-hmm. starting point if that's the center of all of everything then we're in really bad shape and Whereas the starting point should always be God who is love. That's mm-hmm. the starting point of everything. And then when you see sin up against that, it just it changes the way you see everything. And you realize, oh, yeah, there is sin. There's evil. But the larger reality, the ultimate reality, is that God's loving energy is moving through everything. And, and it relentlessly seeks to permeate all of us mm-hmm. until we are, are all healed and able to love. And all of that. But there was a point at which, and this is after I had left the faith, but <laughs> ironically, I was attending grad school at Wheaton College, which is, you know, an evangelical mm-hmm. school. So but I was trying to change careers at the time. I needed to change from music because I had vocal problems and um and I couldn't have a career teaching. So I was moving over to a career that would involve words and books, which had always been my love. So I'm going to Wheaton College. And one day, I made the mile or so walk to Glen Ellen to an Episcopal church because I thought, you know, I've never tried an Episcopal church. Mm-hmm. And one of my, a couple of my professors belonged to Episcopal church, and I thought, I'm, I'm just going to go because I still want to worship. I don't want the God I used to have, but I still feel this. I just wanted to be in a place, a sacred space in worship. So, I went to this Episcopal church and. There came the moment when people began to walk forward to receive the Eucharist. And in the church of my upbringing, the only time you walk forward down the aisle is to confess your sins, mm. become a Christian, or rededicate your life to Christ mm-hmm. because you've fallen away. I mean, it's always like this statement of guilt
4: mm-hmm. to
3: walk the aisle, which is what we called it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But what I noticed is that everyone in this congregation is walking down the aisle to receive the Eucharist. Hmm. And it just hit me. I thought, of course, we all need to walk up to God all the time. Mm -hmm. This, This is a process. I'm not expected to be perfect. I'm not expected to be sinless. I'm expected to always be coming to God. And I was so comforted in that moment. It really, I mean, it changed, it really shifted the way I I thought about, you know, guilt, Mm -hmm. need of God. And, you know, as I eventually became an Episcopalian, which is what I am today. And I actually didn't begin going to that church. It was too difficult. It was a long walk and and all of that. But that image of realizing that, yeah, not only do I need to partake of the Eucharist Mm -hmm. as often as I can, Because this is a sacrament. This is some form of grace. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, it's totally fine that I walk forward and say, I need you, Lord. I need Mm -hmm. you. Rather than, okay, let me tell you what I've screwed up this time. And I hope you'll forgive me again. And it's just a completely different posture toward life. And that just helped me relax in so many ways. And that, you know, I can be who I am. Mm-hmm. I can celebrate who I am, but I can also be honest about who I am because it's safe to do that. You know, I can safely say, okay, I did screw up today, Lord. Yeah. Um, but it's not like, oh, the the world is ending because I've sinned again. It's like, yeah, yeah Lord, here I am. I'm on a continuum. I mean, it's a, the process mm-hmm. is still happening. But it's just a whole different way of going about it, and it's very freeing, and it actually frees you more, I think, for transformation when you feel the safety of God's love. So that's kind of a long answer (laughs) to an initial question, but there you have it. (laughs) Well, I started with
2: a big one, but there are two things that stuck out to me. One, in the beginning when you said that you have thought of God as father, as mother, but also of something like love permeating everything that you do. Mm -hmm and then you equate it the image of father to seeing your own father in that role because you put father label on god and therefore mm-hmm. you had a person inserted into that image and that really struck me because when we personify god to you know obviously god jesus jesus was human but when mm-hmm. we we say god the father we we put some kind of label on him then yeah we in, insert our own human understanding of what that label means and then that changes maybe who God is, and we kind of construct who God is in, in our mind. In one of my classes a few weeks ago, one person was talking and they were constantly referring to God as he, mm-hmm. as father, and the professor just typed in the chat box, how would it change your perspective if you changed the pronoun with which you are referring to God? And it was such a simple question, not a like, you have to change, your," you know, but how what would it look like if you didn't? Refer to God as Father, but just God, you know, what what would that look like? So I I resonated with that part of your description. And then also when you said in the Episcopal Church, you know, people were all going up to receive communion, immediately I thought in the Catholic Church, they always say, if you're in a state of mortal sin, don't come up before Mm -hmm. you receive the sacrament of reconciliation. And so it struck me because there's this yes, I need to be forgiven by God in this other sacrament, but also I really need Jesus mm-hmm. when I'm in a state of sin. So there's this paradox there of like, when I can't go up is also mm-hmm. maybe when I need to go up the most. And yeah. um, so that that resonated in in your story as well, the different ways that we approach the Eucharist, depending on the denomination depending on the church
3: yeah yeah well i'm going to speak first to what you said about the father you know Mm -hmm. when i was still an adolescent i made a new friend she was new to our town and she became best friends and we're still friends today and she still lives in my hometown but and i was trying to evangelize her like any good baptist kid and so at one point she actually went through a conversion experience i'm not saying it's because of me i think she was just ready and and god was there and met her you know but I remember being adamant about calling God Father because mm-hmm. that's just what I had learned. Well, this friend's father had died by suicide like two mm-hmm. years before, and she just flat out told me, she says, I can't, I can't see God as Father because of of what my dad did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember right. exactly how she explained it. Yeah. But basically, you know, to her, Father meant pain and abandonment. And, mm-hmm. and that was a real wake-up call to me. And I'm glad it happened so early in my life because, you know, I was maybe 13 at the time and mm-hmm. I thought, whoa,
4: mm-hmm. I
3: need to pay attention to this. I mean, I don't want to keep this friend from approaching Jesus or approaching yeah. God because yeah. she can't call God Father. And of mm-hmm. course, since then, you know, I've gone through so many different iterations of, You know, it does really change when you use feminine pronouns for God. Mm -hmm. And God, the uh, feminine imagery is used in the Bible in various places for God. I mean, Jesus even said, you know, I long to gather Jerusalem as a mother gathers her chicks, you know, under her wings. And so, you Mm -hmm. know, that feminine imagery was always there. But I, you know, for various reasons, I'm not going to go into. It's kind of tedious. You know, know, we've used the, the male image. For for God, and and that has kept a lot of, especially a lot of women, mm-hmm. um, away from approaching God because of you know the rates of domestic violence, the high rates of sexual abuse of rape. Uh, mm-hmm. For a lot of women, uh, a male figure is not at all safe,
4: mm-hmm. and
3: we have to we have to really pay attention to that, and and just knowing that you know God is so beyond gender. I mean, God is all gender, no gender to To get tangled up in that language is just i think uh well it's just foolish, I think it's foolish to get so uh so attached to certain language for God because we mm-hmm. know that God is beyond all language, even you know we use what we have yes. <laughs> the best way we can, but to be able to adapt that language is is really important, and you know i it, the the whole thing about you know, having to go through one sacrament before you receive the other, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, well, I mean, that's part of the reason, I guess, the, that I'm not Catholic. And even in the Episcopal Church, there are some churches where you, you have to at least be a professing Christian. There are many, there are more and more churches in, in that denomination who say you're welcome no matter what. And, and I kind of go for that. Because I, I think you know, I'm not about keeping Jesus away from anybody.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: But you know, that's that gets tricky because you've got centuries of tradition and doctrine, and you know, I never want to be flippant about it. Yeah, I do think it's possible to confess your sin and receive the Lord Jesus' as a Eucharist. You know, simultaneously, I think yeah. that happened. But it's not for me to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell the Catholic Church you're wrong about this. You need to change that. Mm-hmm. Um, But I think still, you know, if, if you if you perceive God as all loving, all merciful, compassionate, then that makes it easier to even go to confession. Mm-hmm. You know? Because you know that I I am a work in progress, and God yeah. is ultimately patient, and so wherever I am today. That is fine with God because I am still turning to God. I'm saying, mm-hmm. hey, I, you know, I want to keep going on this path. I want to keep yeah. letting go of things that are harmful. I want to stop hurting people. I want to stop hurting myself. But I know that this isn't going to happen overnight, Lord. Mm-hmm. I know it's and thank goodness, you know that you understand that better than I do. You're more patient with me than I am with myself. Yeah. Uh, so even to go to confession, if you have the wrong, you know, if you have a damaging image of God, I don't know how much good going to confession even does. Mm-hmm. You know, you may go through the sacrament and the priest may say, "I absolve you," but can you receive that absolution? See, that's mm-hmm. the real question. Yeah, Not, does the priest absolve you? Yeah, is can I receive it? And mm-hmm. if I still see God as just waiting for me to screw up in this perfectionist mm-hmm. who who uh, just thinks that I should have straightened up a long time ago, Yeah, and and why am I still so screwed up? Uh, (laughs) Then, you know, that absolution, that doesn't mean anything to me, really, if I can't receive it, if I don't really believe it.
2: Yeah, I, I keep getting images of how I thought when I was going to my first confession many, many years ago of how like my little soul inside had all these marks on it and it got, you know, God was erasing the marks. Oh, and yeah. like before I even left the church, there was another one getting marked on there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it it is kind of, it feeds all of our desires to be perfect and our desires mm-hmm. to have good records and great grades and all of those things when we also yeah. put God in that image of, how is God grading me today on, on my, you know, being a good human?
3: Yeah. Well, you know, I, what comes to mind is someone like the Samaritan woman, you know, that Mm -hmm. Jesus talked with, well, she had a pattern of relationships Mm -hmm. and there could be a lot of reasons for that. You know, some of them may have been her own doing, but some of it may have been, you know, she may have had a really rough beginning. You don't mm-hmm. know. She may have been abused a lot early in life because we know that uh, that one outcome of childhood sexual abuse is often promiscuity. And, like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, there are patterns that develop. So we don't know. We don't know her backstory. We do know that she became a convert, and she went back and told her whole village. Mm-hmm. But I keep thinking, okay, what was the rest of her life like? How long was it before she unlearned these emotional patterns of relying on a male for some kind of affirmation? Or, you know, she still had work to do. And, you know, I don't think Jesus expected her to just boom. Oh, my whole outlook is different and, and everything is all new. Well, in a sense, it is, you know, in a, metaphysic, in a metaphysical sense. We are new the moment Christ enters our lives. You know, I'm guessing that she had quite a bit of work to do in terms of understanding, OK, now that I know that God loves me and I'm forgiven, how does that change the way I relate to myself, mm-hmm. the way I relate to men, the way I relate to my community? You know, these stories, we don't know the mm-hmm. details of how they work themselves out later. Yeah. But just looking at people who are in recovery, people of faith, people who have been uh, faithful Christians for many years, you recognize there there is always this continuum of of development, you know, of mm-hmm. becoming different than you were before and sometimes we have an almost miraculous uh, liberation from say addiction to alcohol I mean you do hear about that yeah you hear people being almost a spontaneous healing that kind of gets them down the road pretty far before they you know begin doing their own work but there's always a process that follows mm-hmm. that and and when I understand that then I'm also able to accept myself as I am today because I know that God doesn't expect me to suddenly become perfect just because I made a decision. God knows that there are deep, deeply rooted patterns in my life that I spent 20 years learning how to think like this. I'm not going to unlearn that in 10 minutes of prayer. Right. Uh, And I think often we forget that Jesus being human like us means that Jesus understood a process of becoming a person is complex, and it involves habits of thinking, habits of believing, even emotional habits we get used to. And so understanding that God receives me as I am today, again, that gives me the freedom to say, okay, I'm going to work on this some more today. Yeah, how far I get, you know,
4: Um,
3: and it's just it's very freeing. And, and you realize that you have the freedom to grow the shame and guilt really put a cramp on that freedom that makes it hard.
2: Yeah, I mean, if we think of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman as the opportunity for her to be told, I love you as you are, no matter what, right here in this moment, no matter what you do when you leave this well, this is what is true. Yeah, that kind of changes and shifts the perspective, right, of it wasn't that Jesus, and, and, you know, we aren't in the mind of Jesus necessarily, but Uh that he was like, okay, she's going to go be perfect now, you know, like Uh it was more just, I see everything about you and I still am here talking to you and I still accept you and love you as you are. Use that to go and figure out what the rest of your life will look like. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And, you know, you see this in the way we treat one another. And I, you as a parent, I'm sure you've seen this over and over again, when a child feels secure in the parent's love, mm-hmm. that child can develop the kind of emotional courage to just learn about life and mm-hmm. try things and make mistakes or not do real well at something or have mm-hmm. a bad day and get over it. Because that child is in the safety of the parent's love. Mm -hmm. But if you have that same child and the parent is always withholding love in order to try to manipulate that child to be good or do something, it's a whole different scenario. Mm -hmm. And that child does not have the emotional freedom to just grow naturally. I mean, we grow by trial and error, by trying things, by... You know it's it's an ongoing experiment, this growth called human life and And so when we see how that has an impact on children, uh, it should just be kind of a short little leap to see, well, it's the same with me, It's the same with people in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm a spiritual director and and my primary the primary thing I need to do when I speak with someone, when I sit with someone in spiritual direction. Is that I must create a safe, sacred, expansive space for that person in which that person can be exactly who he or she is, regardless of what they're going through, regardless of how they are emotionally, what's going on in their lives, what they're struggling with. Uh, I must create that safe space. And when, when they realize that they are in that safe space, then they can exhale they can begin to tell the truth about what's going on Mm -hmm. and that's the only way that can happen and Mm -hmm. and you know whether I am with a client in spiritual direction or if I'm just in a relationship with people that I meet daily if I create that space for them that's safe then they actually are more free to ask questions, to face the truth, maybe even make a change in their lives. But coming at them with condemnation and judgment, I mean, that's just worthless. It does no good whatsoever. It makes it harder for them to move. So I just, I tell people, I would rather err on the side of mercy and compassion, always, Mm -hmm. uh, than I'd rather give people too much room yeah, and Maybe a little too uh, loosey-goosey with rules or what. I'd much rather err on that side of it mm-hmm. than, than be the one who carried condemnation or judgment to the point where people just, they couldn't do the work they needed to do.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love the Ignatian phrase of meeting people where they are
4: Absolutely. And carrying
2: them, um, not carrying them one step further in your direction, but meeting people where they are and then journeying one step forward together, right? Wherever that is. Yeah. But it's always in a direction towards God, right? And that's yeah. going to look different for every person. And I also, because of that, meeting people where they are uh, and some of the other tenets of Ignatian spirituality, it's really what taught me the phrase loved as I am you know it really had put that into my um into my mind and into my heart how did you first come to know not only the phrase you know loved as I am but also about Ignatian spirituality because clearly you're not Catholic it's a Catholic spirituality but it's also universal like there's a lot of non Catholics that practice Ignatian spirituality so how did that come into your life
3: well, it's kind of a fun story because, you know, I've, I've worked as a book editor in publishing for 32 years. And the last 22 of those years was at Loyola Press in mm-hmm. Chicago. It's a Jesuit ministry and it's a publisher. I had never heard of Ignatius of Loyola. You know, I just hadn't. Uh, I had nothing against saints. You know, I thought that was kind of interesting because as a Protestant fundamental, you know, I didn't grow up with the saints. But I'd always been interested and open to it. But anyway. At Loyola Press, shortly after I came on board there, they decided to really, the leadership there decided we need to look into our roots and see what our real niche as a publisher should be. Mm -hmm. Because their trade department, their general spirituality uh, books for adults department, was just forming and they were trying to do a little bit of everything. They were trying to compete with New York publishers and evangelical, Mm -hmm. you know. And it was all over the place, and they decided we need to figure out, you know, let's look into our roots. So that meant that we began a movement toward much more Ignatian spirituality-centered books. And as it turned out, yeah, that was our niche. That's what we needed to really be focusing on. Mm -hmm. And Loyola Press is uh, also—their bread and butter, really, is producing uh, faith formation materials for Catholic schools and parishes— so they even took the Ignatian part into that, and they developed a whole new faith formation program, which really, I thought, was very honoring of children and their own relationship with God. And, uh, just a tremendous uh, faith formation program. Well, also in trade books, which is where I worked. Uh, so I end up working with Jesuits, you know, Jesuit writers. I'm, I'm editing books on the spiritual exercises. As an employee, I went through sort of a form of the exercises uh, just so that I could be more familiar with it. And what I discovered was um, Ignatius, you know, five centuries ago, had discovered some principles of life and growth and understanding that I had actually tapped into as a writer of fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um what the creative process had taught me about just growth and becoming and growing understanding, such as paying attention to your emotions, respecting your deep intuition, being more connected to your body and what your five senses are telling you. All of that, as a fiction writer, I had learned to tap into and pay attention to. But then I'm kind of hearing these same principles, but in a more uh, uh, specifically spiritual format, And I thought, okay, for one thing, Ignatius was like the original Catholic evangelical because he was talking about having a relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And evangelicals, that's like, that's the thing you hear all the time, relationship with Jesus. Yeah. Well, Ignatius was, he was saying that, you know, 500 years ago. And, And the Catholic faith has always had that. You know, it's not like he discovered something new, but he really brought a new emphasis to the fact that we are to be in friendship with God. We are to walk as friends with Jesus. And, you know, it was just ringing all of these bells for me. And I thought, okay, okay. Not only does he understand some of these deeper things that my creative work has revealed to me, but this is just a very refreshing take on spiritual growth. And so I became a fan right away and eventually discovered that, oh, you know, these principles help us help one another grow spiritually. And, you know, it led to me getting trained as a spiritual director. And now I'm retired from book publishing, but you know, I have a growing spiritual direction practice and it's like, it all fits really well, but it was kind of funny the way it happened because having never heard of St. Ignatius and then then discovering that actually, well, he and I actually figured out a lot of the same things in just using different kinds of language and, um so it's been a very a very satisfying kind of spirituality to really to really immerse myself in and especially you know the you know all that he figured out about discernment mhm and as a kind of a macho Spaniard guy <laughs> you know he was quite uh open to what we now call sort of the feminine part of the feminine um functions in the human personality yeah um, I'm actually I actually have a book that kind of compares uh, uh, it talks about how Carl Jung the great psychologist um, how he talks he, he mentioned Ignatius you know various times and so even I mean it's like Ignatius was tapping into what we would now call in some ways Jungian psychology I mean not completely it's not a perfect match, but, but he was figuring out some things that they didn't really have names for back then, but that now we can say, yeah, he's talking about the masculine and feminine yeah, part of the human personality. And, mm-hmm. and all of it has to come to bear on the way we understand God and also on the way we go about discerning. Yeah. You, know, you have to, you have to allow your body to talk to you, your emotions mm-hmm. to talk to you, your intuition to talk to you your dreams and desires and fears, all of that needs to figure in. Um, And it becomes kind of a very holistic way of looking at your life of discerning where God where the Holy spirit is, is leading you. And it's just, you know, he was ahead of his time. And I just see it resonating in so many ways with Mm -hmm. what we have since discovered, you know, even in a scientific way. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a fan. I'm still a fan. (laughs) It's
2: interesting you mention Carl Jung because I bring it up in a Christian relationships class that I teach. And his philosophy also includes like the shadow self versus the self that you, you know, show to the world. Things Mm -hmm. that you have to discover about yourself to really be your unique and real person. And I think that's something that Ignatius talks about a lot, you know, through the spiritual exercises, you're really trying Mm -hmm. to find out who is the real you and bring everything to the surface. The other thing is that I, I didn't know about Ignatius either before I worked in a Jesuit school. And what really resonated with me was always that Ignatius cared about my real life, like cared about what was actually happening in the day to day cared about whether or not I made a pro con list about something or talked to mentors and guides about it. In fact, that's part of the discernment process. And so Uh it really was able to take what human beings are really experiencing and put it in the context of faith, Uh, even down to imaginative prayer, where you don't have to know everything about a scripture passage, or even be a character that's possible to be in that scripture passage you know Mm -hmm. there are not that many passages with women as a as a named character so when you think about trying to put yourself in a scripture passage most of the time when it's described you're like well i can't be there but when ignatius describes you know contemplation and when kind of going through ignatius spirituality in that way well yeah i can be there because it's not Mm -hmm. about it's not about whether or not I was in the original scene. It's about what does that have, yeah. what is Jesus talking to me about right now in that scene in the present day?
3: Yeah. Oh, well, and, and of course, as a writer, you know, the imagination is really important to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, and I recognize imagination as a, as a very spiritual function. Mm-hmm. You, know, it, we, it, you couldn't really pray if you didn't have imagination. You know, you wouldn't yeah. know what to pray for. You wouldn't you wouldn't be able to name your desires if you had no imagination.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, and and yeah, the real life that well, and see the thing is, is if you if you begin to recognize that that you can find God in any place in any person, because as a, again, God this this love that permeates the universe and, and longs to just permeate us so completely that we're in union with that love. And I mean, Jesus talks so much about union in in one of his, his long final prayer before he was taken and crucified. You know, when you, when you realize that, that this is the reality, then there's no secular versus sacred,
4: Mm -hmm. you know,
3: you're not dividing your life into, well, this is spiritual and this is not spiritual. And so, yeah, normal life is your life in God. Uh, Well, that's a, that's a completely liberating way to see your life. Yeah. And, and you're able to be more honest about things too. I think, uh, you know, one thing about, um, the whole Ignatian form of, of discernment and and reflection, you know, in the spiritual exercises, you're constantly reflecting on, well, what was that prayer like for me? Or Mm -hmm. how did this day go? And one thing that helps us do is that I'm not just looking at, okay, what bad thing that did I do today that I need (laughs) to confess? Yeah. Now I'm not I'm not uh, minimizing sin Mm -hmm. or evil. You know, all you have to do is look at the news or just your neighborhood and you see those things are very real. They're very real. But what, what the Ignatian path of discernment and reflection helps me do is not just recognize, okay, I did this thing that I shouldn't have done or I said this thing that I shouldn't have said. It helps me begin to reflect and say, okay, what is the deeper pattern here? You know, why did I say that thing that I said? Why have I developed this habit in the way I relate to this person? In other words, I'm digging deeper and I'm looking at, okay, what's the root of this? Because it's, you know, I mean, it's fine to like go to confession and say, well, I did this. And I said that, but the real progress happens when the Holy spirit helps me look deeper and say, okay, where is this coming from? Yeah. You know, what am I afraid of that I keep jumping into this way of relating to this person or what to, you know, what am I really angry about, Lord? I snapped at my husband today for absolutely no reason. So that it's—it wasn't just about him doing that thing that irritated me. There's something deeper going on here, yeah. and that's what I need to deal with. It's not mm-hmm. oh this sin or that sin, it, it, this, you know. Um, and when you begin to work with your interior life in that way, then you can really begin to see progress, and that you say, oh, "Okay." Ah, okay, this is where that comes from. Okay, Lord, let's pray about this. I'm not gonna pray so much about the fact that I snapped at my husband. We both know where that came from. Yeah. Help me figure out, okay, why, you know, why did I feel that compulsion to do it? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. And God says, Okay, fine, like Vanita, <laughs> we're gonna say well, you know, this is a yeah. real issue.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And that is just, oh, it um it really enables you to not only progress
4: mm-hmm.
3: and become more evolved, more mature spiritually, but you can also see your progress, you know, because you're reflecting on your activity and and the way you are, you can begin to see, oh, you know what? It's been two weeks since I snapped at my husband. Yeah. And therefore, this must be working. Mm-hmm. Because this habit is abating i'm i'm managing to actually change this habit and that's so encouraging to be able to say oh okay yeah i'm getting better here i'm learning i'm learning i'm developing instead of you know how many times did i do this let me let me confess it to the priest and i'm not i'm not minimizing you know mm-hmm. using confessor i think that's really healthy to have another person in on this sometimes it can really help Uh, But just the nature of the confession is a big, big difference in how you see yourself and and, and how you progress.
2: Yeah, it's a both and, right? Asking for forgiveness for what you've done, but then also asking for help into how to figure out how to not do that again. Yeah, Um, And also looking at, I think Ignatian spirituality helped me to look at sin as damaging relationship Mm -hmm. as opposed to sin as like black marks on my soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that really, that's the thing that makes you want to work on the root cause when you really think how am I damaging this relationship with God, and mm-hmm. then in turn, damaging relationships with others, because I'm not figuring out why this is happening over and over again. And I'm glad that you mentioned spiritual direction earlier, because I think that's often a a foreign term. To people, Mm -hmm. um, it's been around forever, but to be able to really know what that is and know that that's something that is available to you as any person of any faith, but to be Mm -hmm. able to have the conversation that the main purpose is just two people talking about faith where the Mm -hmm. focus is on one person's development in in their relationship, right? And and where did I harm this relationship and how can I be better at it? We often don't know that that's, an option necessarily or we've heard it but we don't really know what it is so i kind of want to keep bringing it up to people as find mm-hmm. somebody to do that with uh, i think you said in a conversation a, a week or two ago that that's really the future of of churches is give having that conversation having people continue to develop their relationship through spiritual direction that kind of leads them back then to the community mm-hmm. reconciles them with the community gives them an opportunity to be a part of something bigger
3: yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, the church is going through some very difficult. I I've just used the word evolution. I think uh, the the world is constantly moving toward uh, something better. I think uh, again that that foundational, that fundamental love. That gives everything life is always moving us toward that next phase of who we are, and, and the church is in that too, and it's very painful. you know it, it, it means that sometimes things kind of get taken apart before they can be put back together again. but regardless of where a person is in terms of belief or unbelief or church or you know churched or unchurched or whatever, um, they they continue to have an interior world need to have a spiritual life, even if they don't use spiritual terms to describe. It. Um, and so in spiritual direction, you're simply you're sitting with someone who's listening to you try to describe what's going on in your interior world. And, and you know, as a spiritual director, it doesn't matter to me what vocabulary you use. It doesn't matter to me what religious tradition you're from. Uh, because I do believe that God is constantly inviting every single person into communion, and um, and depending on your culture, uh, depending on where in the world you are, you may have different language for that. But you know, God is no respecter of persons, and and so I believe that uh, that that holy love is always inviting you into some kind of conversation. And again, I'm just trying to create a nice, safe, expansive place for that to happen. And I think a lot of people, especially those who have been wounded by church life, regardless of which church it is, there are a lot of people who are never going to walk in a church door, maybe not in their whole lifetime, because of what they think about the church or what people in church have done to them or whatever. And so in spiritual direction, it's like you're creating a place for them to still talk about their spirituality and explore it. And, you know, I would love to see people end up in faith community because I think we're built for community. We're designed, we're created to live in community, and I think it's healthy if you have one. Nevertheless, uh, a spiritual director will sit with you and be with you wherever you are, you know, in that process. And and I do think that a lot of the spiritual work within people may happen outside of church, you know, in the not so near future, uh, or maybe in the near future. I think especially with younger people, um, you know, people in their 20s and 30s, there's just a growing number of them. They, they have no interest in church. They don't know what it means. They don't have any language for it. Uh, They don't see any need for it. And so, you know, I'm not going to demand that they come inside my church building and sit and listen to us talk about our spirituality in a certain vocabulary. I am willing to go out and, you know, be with that person where they are and and trust that the Holy Spirit is at work. You know, either the Holy Spirit is at work or we're just we're all in really bad shape. (laughs) Either I believe it or I don't. And I just. To believe that the Holy Spirit is at work, and and we're all in process.
2: Yeah, I feel like I I want to add on to the Ignatian phrase of meet a person where they are. Meet a person where they are, so they can understand their belovedness, and oh, then go out and see that belovedness in other people and help other people understand their belovedness. Because sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, I can go to a spirit. Well, now I'm training to be a spiritual director so Mm -hmm. i guess it's that moving on but like Mm -hmm. you go to spiritual direction to develop your relationship with god but there's a next step once you've figured once you've kind of figured out and and it's not like a next step that happens in a certain amount of time and it's not like a requirement that you Mm -hmm. you know develop your relationship with god but it it's kind of something that naturally happens that your relationship with god you understand that you're loved as you are and then you want to help other people do the same thing. And that's the kind of thing that will lead people back to community, right? Oh, yeah. If start If we start there, because I think one of the things that gets in the way so much of community is our own inability to know that we're loved, because then we can't see others in that light as well.
3: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. Um, you know... When Jesus began his public ministry, he essentially is saying to people, rejoice because the kingdom of heaven is here. In other words, in my translation of that is you are already loved. It's already a fact. Uh, And so I'm here to show you how to live as if you're loved. You know, Uh, Jesus was confident in his heavenly father's love. And that enabled him to do all that he did. And and he was able to work in collaboration. Uh and you know what we're called to do is to collaborate with God of the universe to to help this love continue to permeate and 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 uh energize everything, yeah, you know, every person, everything that happens. And I know I'm speaking kind of mystical, you know, really large general terms, but if we can kind of keep that in the back of our mind that, you know, I am, I'm invited to collaborate with God. Yeah. Do whatever I can to help people know that before they do anything or change their mind or anything else, God already Mm -hmm. helps them. And when they begin to believe that, then you know that's the liberation I think that Jesus was talking about. You know, set the prisoners free. You know, free from the prison of our weird belief systems, free from the prison of our shame, our guilt, our fear, you know, Mm -hmm. we're all afraid. And and how many times has Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yeah. Um, So it's yeah, it's a different way of going about life. And and I think you're right. You know, just naturally, it's like once I understand, okay, I am loved, I am the beloved, then I think it's so, I'm so much more sensitive to see other people and understand that, you know, he doesn't know. Yeah. beloved. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I want him to know what, I, what right? I know. And I want him to begin to experience some of the freedom I have because I know I'm loved. I'm free to grow and change, become more of who I was created to be, and so when you see people, I think you become much more uh, sensitive to recognizing the kind of prisons that people live in, and and you just want to see them free of that. I think that's evangelism. You know, it's not getting people to 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 recite certain facts about certain theological facts. Yeah, it's nice to have those theological frameworks to use but it is not about okay I confess I'm a sinner and Jesus and it and you know I I want Jesus to save me from my sin you know that I grew up with this evangelical culture that is basically you do these five steps and you're good to go you know um and and there are, you know some of that is is inherent in the conversion process you have to to have certain things that you understand of course but I think the real impetus of evangelism is that you look out at the world and you say, I see all of these people. They're imprisoned in their shame, in their woundedness. And, um, you know, to me, when I think of sin, what I'm really thinking of is the systems of this world that damage people. And and the first thing Jesus did when he encountered a person was he healed them. He didn't talk to them about their sin. I can't find a single place except two or three places where he's really confronting the Pharisees. Yeah. But but in terms of encountering people, the first thing he did was healing. Yeah. And then maybe you know, he would say, "And your sins are forgiven." It's almost yeah. like, you know, the real thing we need to do here is I need to heal this person, right? And and I think most of the time our sinfulness is wrapped up in our woundedness. You know, we have been damaged by various systems in this world, and, and that is where Jesus wants to meet us. He says, I'm, I'm going to heal you, and, and then I'm going to help you see how wrapped up you've gotten in this system that is just tearing you apart. and 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 so that you can, number one, stop participating in that system, you know, but also uh be healed and and so I just don't I don't think it's helpful to start with people's sin. I just don't think I don't think that's what Jesus did. You know, he starts with, okay, where do you hurt? Let let me reach you there.
2: Because we don't have the ability to change when we're still hurting. Like we don't have the ability to go forth and sin no more when we're still trying to recover from whatever it is. Yeah, and, and you might have just answered this, but uh, you know, I usually ask Is there anything in this? Well, there's lots of things in 2023 that mm-hmm. anyone could point to that makes it difficult to understand your belovedness. But is there anything in particular that you think stands out right now that kind of keeps people from understanding this concept of being loved as they are?
3: One thing that comes to mind is, especially in the United States, I think we've just so much bought into, um, an individualistic way of getting through life. Um, and it's, and, and we're so bought, we have so bought into this meritocracy. Like, uh, if I'm smart enough, if I make the right decisions, if, if I, uh, if I work hard enough, my life will be Okay. And if my life is not okay, then either I've screwed it up or there's somebody else I need to blame. You know, it's it's a really restrictive construct for getting through life. And and yet we buy into it because we're just told all everything from the old Westerns, you know, to um, even a lot of self-help, you know, is very much about you can be the best that you can be kind of thing. And it just totally overlooks the fact that we are designed to love one another and be in community. We're designed to need one another, to depend on one another. And when we try to pull out of that and do it all on our own, and even a lot of spirituality is very, very self-focused. Uh, a lot of the spirit is a lot of the spirituality kind of self-help stuff. It really is not helpful because you're still on your own trying to develop this prayer habit or do this other thing. And when you pull out of all of that, when you pull out of community and try to do all this on your own, it's just, it's a losing battle because Mm -hmm. we were not designed that way. We just were not. And and I say that as an introvert, okay? I mean, I can be on my own for days on end and not talk to a single person and be completely happy, okay? Yeah. However, I also know that I am integrated in a community, and I need that community, and that community needs me. Yeah. And when I need help, I need to speak up and go to someone and say, I need help. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to go to a person in my parish or a neighbor and say, I need your prayers. I'm having a really rough day. Yeah. Or, you know, everything needs to be in the context of I belong to this com- this community. Yeah. And, um, and so I think this individualistic way of going through life, it puts so much pressure on us to make sure we get it done right. Yeah. And that we don't screw up, and that we do the smartest thing, and we make the very best decisions. Uh, it's just it's self sabotaging. Yeah. It really is, and you know that's one thing. That's just the thing that comes to mind. Yeah. It's a biggie. Well, especially because there's
2: so many prescriptive ways to live life. Even for your children, they're supposed to have certain milestones at certain times, and when they don't, mm-hmm. and you failed, that's not actually true of children. Like there's yeah. there's a kind of a average time frame but really kids grow yeah. on their own I and mean, they they kind of come to those milestones at their own time. Um, I remember when I was potty training my kids there was <laughs> one day method, the three day method and I was none of the none of the methods worked for my children. And yeah. I was and I had a wise parent who also just didn't try any of those methods say to me they're not going to go to kindergarten without being able to use the bathroom. Like they'll figure it out. And then I was like, okay, so like, I don't, you know, they'll get old enough to figure it out and you don't have yeah. to push the process. So yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that also keeps us on our own and in, in our own individual silos is sometimes mm-hmm. not knowing if we'll be understood and not knowing yeah. if our story will be heard, not knowing if mm-hmm. people will empathize with what they hear. Yeah. 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 yeah so it is, it's a big one.
3: For sure. Yeah. We put we put enormous pressure on ourselves and and our culture puts enormous pressure on us too. I mean, you know, without getting political, but I mean just look at the state of kids' sports. Tremendous pressure. It's not like you can just have a pickup game of ball with the neighbor kids anymore. It's it's gotta be very organized, it becomes really competitive. Parents have to be like one hundred and ten percent in with you. I mean, it's and and I'm not I'm not denigrating you know group sports or even organized sports, but just the, the perfectionistic yeah. um, pressure that our culture puts on even our kids participating in sports. You know, it's it's really damaging. Yeah.
2: Every year we have to get better. Every year we have to do something a little bit better. We have to do it even better, mm-hmm. which means we have to do more, or we have to you know learn new ways of proceeding.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And yeah, it can be exhausting because it's, I mean, you should always be growing, but sometimes mm-hmm. that doesn't mean throwing everything out and starting all over again either. Yeah,
3: and we're seeing the ramifications of this in the mental health, especially of our teenagers our adolescents. The, the uh, Mental health issues are just skyrocketing with, with young people. And a lot of, it was just, I was on the PBS NewsHour a couple nights ago talking about uh, what the, typical teenager has to deal with, with school, hours, of homework, hours of extracurricular activities. It was, the story was about how little sleep they get. Yeah. And the fact that teenagers actually need a lot of sleep for Mm -hmm. their, you know, for their mental processes and everything. And yet most of them don't get enough sleep and it's because they have programmed all of this stuff so that they can succeed, get into the right college, you know, get all the right points, uh, so we're seeing the results of this perfectionistic culture and, and also the, indiv- the the individualistic way of going about life. We're seeing the bad fruit of all of that in our kids, and it's just heartbreaking.
2: Yeah. Well, that's why this message is so important. I think not only, you know, for me to say it and put it on a podcast label, but for every guest that comes on to share their own perspective so that hopefully somebody will hear
4: yeah.
2: a perspective that resonates with them and like they can start to really understand that belovedness about themselves and others. Yeah. Anita, this has been such a great conversation. I want to make sure that I mention that your latest book is a four-week personal retreat with the female doctors of the church, which mm-hmm. I think is so awesome because I don't think everybody even knows who the four female who the four female <laughs> doctors of the church are. Um, but can you tell us in just a couple words what that what that book is about?
3: Well, Ave Maria Press came to me with this idea. And at first I thought they, they were needing an expert on the four female doctors of the church. And they are Therese of Lisieux, Teresa of Avila, Hildegard of Bingen, and Catherine of Siena.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And, um, and they said, well, you don't need to be an expert. on Because, you know, there are academics that spend whole lives yeah. on these women. Uh, but they said, we want you to put your spiritual director's hat on. Mm. And I said, oh, well, I can do that. <laughs> and he <they laughs> yeah. said, we want this to be a retreat book. And so you know there and you don't have to do it in just four calendar weeks. It's actually quite a bit to do because uh, mm-hmm. I've been doing retreat work for years, and I'm very good at giving people stuff to do. <laughs> so, but each week focuses on one of one of these women and her particular gifts, her contributions to Christianity. and then I just I create retreat exercises, you know prayer practices for people to do, things to reflect on. They receive uh, words from the women themselves, which are just phenomenal, and then also little reflections, uh, some scripture here and there. It's just it's it's uh, designed to help people do retreat and get to know each of these women a little better. Yeah. Uh, and we've had, I mean, the sales are going very well. We've had uh, really good responses to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's especially good for like small group work. So if, yeah. if there was a group of women in, in a church or a group of men, I mean, anybody could do it, but, um, that wanted to study a book together over maybe two or three months, not, not one month. Cause it's, it's quite a bit to do. I think, um, the feedback I'm getting is that people are really, uh, finding this a very fruitful way to look at these women and to look at their own. Uh, their own prayer lives. So yeah, I'm very happy with how it's going.
2: Yeah, that's great. I I want to make sure to mention it because I know that we can look for a variety of ways to engage with retreat. And we were just talking about individualism versus community. And Mm -hmm. this is a great opportunity. This and many other books that you've worked on are great opportunities (laughs) to grab one of those books and get a small group together and have a conversation about spirituality. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I know this will not be our last conversation because we have a lot of them about Ignatian spirituality, but <laughs> thank you so much for being on this podcast. Wow, this, and is a, this
3: is a real treat.
2: Yeah, I look forward to having conversations about being loved as you are with you in the future.
3: Okay, thank you so much, Gretchen. This is a great ministry.
2: I enjoyed this conversation with Vanita. Maybe you noticed that I did a fair amount of listening this time. She has a lot of wisdom to share, and I am always ready to learn from it. She and I have different histories, different upbringings, different ways of looking at the world, but we found connection through Ignatian spirituality, and I hope you found connection to her and her work listening to this episode as well. You can find her books linked in the show notes. Do you think you or someone you know has a story about being loved as you are that would fit with this podcast? Please reach out to me and let me know by emailing me at lovedasyouarepod at gmail.com. I have another exciting guest coming your way very soon, but for now, remember to be who you are because that's exactly who God wants you to be.
0: Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The Professional Parts People. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me